Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody. I just want to say thank you once again. Here we are three years into the Lincoln Project. We would not be here without you. We cannot say thank you enough for all of your help, all of your support, and even just listening. Share this podcast with your friends. You'll never find a better place to understand the fight we're in, the kinds of people we're fighting alongside, and the information you need to understand just what's going on out there when sometimes you're scratching your head. Gang, we start year four today, and I hope that you'll stay with us in year four and year five, and as long as it takes to win this battle for democracy. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Rick Wilson, my fellow co-founder, brother-in-arms, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, author of not one but two New York Times best-selling books, Running Against the Devil and Everything Trump Touches Dies, and host of the new popular worldwide phenomenon podcast, Rick Wilson's The Enemies List. Rick, thanks for coming back. Hey, Reed, how are you doing? Well, I gotta tell you, man, as we're recording this, this coming Saturday will be the third anniversary of the founding of the Lincoln Project. And since we operate in dog years, it's it feels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have said it better myself. It's hard to believe where we started, where we've been and where we are and where we're headed. And I just wanted for the folks who have been with us for a long time to provide a little insight and walk down memory lane to why we even got into this crazy business you know a little sense of how far we've come and then what the battles lie ahead for so from your perspective tell everybody out there in radio land you know why we did this well reed thanks for everything you've done for the last three years to keep this pirate ship moving in the right direction literally could not have done this without your steady hand during the course of these long and good and bad and great and terrible and amazing and devastating months and years because we have lived through a time that I think all of us kind of saw coming. And that's one of the reasons we founded this group. One of the reasons we did this was all of us who were supposedly the jaded, cynical political hacks turned out to be the ones who actually believed that we had to fight for this beautiful country that we had to actually fight for that little D word of democracy and for that R word of a republic. And we did it because we could and because we had to. I almost feel silly saying it this way, but we were called to do this work because we understood it with a clarity that we knew other people didn't have. We understood it with a clarity that we knew was required to fight something that was going to be long and difficult and sometimes really ugly. And what we built to fight that battle is something that wasn't just about you or me or the other co-founders. It was about millions of Americans who were looking for somewhere to learn how to fight, 
and somewhere to see a little ray of hope out in a very dark place that our country was and, and frankly still is in. And we did it because Americans do this kind of ridiculous shit. You know, we will fuck everything up in this country until the last possible second. We've done this throughout our history. We will do everything wrong a million different ways. And when it really counts, providence and persistence and American stubbornness steps up, gets back in the fight and says, uh-uh, we are not going to lose this country. We are not going to lose this precious heritage. We are not going to lose, no matter how flawed and fucked up and backward and broken we are, we will not fail. And, you know, being reflective three years into this battle, it is really something that I think is, you know, I'm very proud of the work we've done. I'm proud of the way this organization has grown. You know, oddly, we're a smaller thing than we were in 2020 in terms of the total number of people that work in the operation, but we're a more powerful force in the American political landscape than we've ever been. We have a permanent lease signed in the heads of a lot of bad guys. More every day, in fact. Yeah, I'm proud of the list of people who hate us. and <laughs> Judges by our enemies. Judges guess, by right? our enemies. But the work we've done, you know, people say that the work we've done speaks for itself. Well, in our case, it actually does speak for itself. In our case, the work we've done has been in 2020 to try to save this country from Donald Trump and his movement. And we got the first part down pretty pat. We got that one pretty well done. And in 2022, just as we were in 20, we were the lonely guys in the wilderness saying, it's going to be about Trump. Trust us, it's going to be about Trump. It's not going to be about prescription drug coverage. It's going to be about Trump. It was going to be about Trump. And in 2021, we were the lonely guys in the wilderness saying, it's going to be about democracy. They tried to overthrow American democracy. It's going to be about democracy. And sure enough, this year, in the beginning of this year, Democrats were convinced it was going to be about prescription drug coverage and student loan debt and all those things. And we kept saying it's going to be about democracy. And even the things that weren't about democracy this year, like Dobbs, were about democracy and about individual rights and individual liberty. You know, it's interesting just going back. We launched this effort with an op-ed in The New York Times. We didn't know what would happen if anybody would show up. And I tell people, you know, I thought we'd raise about $25,000 in the last two weeks of 2019, the last two weeks of December. And we raised 400000 which was, for us, an incredible amount of money, for anybody an incredible amount of money, but for a group of people who just had an idea, wrote an op-ed, and had a website, you know, it was something. But I think we should also recall that it was January, February, March, we're into COVID. April, the world has changed, and we had just been at the Cooper Union in New York City on the 160th anniversary of Lincoln's Right Makes Might speech, and we all go home thinking, we're going to take this show on the road. We had this incredible reception, and the next thing you know, your book tour is canceled, and we're remote <laughs> for the foreseeable future. I mean, it wasn't until early May when we, we've talked about the now famous ad, Morning in America, that Trump saw at about 1 o'clock in the morning when we went from an interesting thing to a unicorn, literally overnight. And all of the good, incredible things that came along with that and all of the difficult, sometimes incredibly painful things that came along with it too. But the strategy of keeping in Trump's face to be his main opponents, having him turn toward us as then former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign was getting itself squared away, and then to see that, you know, we I think we did, what, 250 or 300 ads that year. And that think about this. 
it all came down to election night, right? We were all sitting here in Park City. You know, we felt pretty good about the work we'd done. We thought, okay, this fever will break on this country. And then, and you can go back and look at some of the footage of the people shot and you see the, certainly the look on my face, right? It was like, holy shit, this is going to be a lot closer than anybody thought it was going to be. You had even said, I think in October, even if he loses, one, that doesn't mean he'll be gone, but two, they'll take Trumpism and they'll run it through the car wash. You know, after a conversation with Mary Trump, she said, if he loses, he's not going to go quietly. And Trigvi Olson said, you know, at a meeting we were having in, you know, October, he's not going to go quietly and they'll probably storm some buildings. And before you know it, Rick, here we are past Election Day 2020. It turns out Mark Meadows and Bill Barr were cooking up something for us, you know, because we scared off the likes of Jones Day from their legal efforts. And, you know, that rolls into January 6th. And, you know, we thought, okay, well, the world has changed yet again. And we thought that maybe this would be it. Maybe this would be the defining moment where Trump had taken a step too far. And in the days and weeks after that day, almost two years ago now, Kevin McCarthy goes to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring, gives him absolution in his own way. And Mitch McConnell and 16 other or 15 other Republican senators who could have excised Donald Trump from the body politic forever chose not to do so. And in the wake of all that, as I like to say, January 6th was not an end point, but a starting point, because then we saw an uptick in the vitriol, an uptick in violence, an uptick in the language, basically a blanket of anti-democracy legislation that started 2021 and, you know, anti-abortion and any individual liberty legislation that concluded 2021. And the idea that we sit here, Rick, now at the conclusion of 2022 and all of the things that happened this year to think that, yes, it is about Trump, but that the movement that I don't know if he spawned it, if he took the wheel of it or if he grew it, whatever it is, metastasized. Yes, he is still its main messenger, its main focal point. But to say that what he brought to American politics has not spread throughout us, I think is something that far too many of our friends and colleagues still don't understand. You know, we used to always say this in 2020. Our three goals were to defeat Donald Trump, to defeat his enablers, and to defeat Trumpism. We kicked ass on the first part. We did a good job. We should all be proud of that. On the second part, mixed bag, but we had four big victories that year that we were involved in that I think we should not lose sight of in Arizona, Colorado, and two in Georgia, and completely missed the degree to which Trumpism had metastasized into the Republican culture. The Republican Party is like those things on nature documentaries where the parasite eats the animal from the inside out, and it looks like, you know, whatever shrimp it is, but the parasite's really running the creature. And the parasite is running the GOP now, and they have mainstreamed all these things. If you ask the average Republican voter, should the people who conducted January 6th be prosecuted, they'll tell you no. They'll tell you they were justified because the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They'll tell you that it was a conspiracy theory, that the FBI really secretly ran it. And luckily, you know, it produced a few more people in our Bannon line pool of former Republicans and conservative-leaning independents. But the majority of the party now believes in things that are not true. They believe in things that are not American. I mean, last night in New York City at a gala event in New York City, Steve Bannon and Marjorie Taylor Greene are cracking jokes about how if they'd organized 1-6, it would have been armed and they would have won. 
And the question that you asked was, won what, Margie? What would you have won? And these people really now understand that the Democratic Party is barely equipped to stop them. And this is some tough love for our Democratic friends. Congratulations on 2022. The big races came across, but not by much. 150,000 votes different in this country this year. And guess what? You'd have a Republican majority in the Senate. You'd have Governor Kerry Lake. You'd have Senator Herschel Walker. You'd have Doug Mastriano if a few hundred thousand votes changed. And so the scope of the victory of 2022 is narrow and bounded. And this is not a country that has walked all the way back from the edge. We're still not just on the edge. We're looking over it. This is a country where the political skill of an acumen of the Republican Party is only offset by the fact that crazy people now are its candidates because there's a consultant class that is an order of magnitude more talented and dangerous than their counterparts on the Democratic side. Let me ask you something, just skipping around here as we're thinking about the world as we're looking at it going into the future. Trigby and I were on the phone earlier today, and we were talking about Kristen Sinema, who has recently changed her party status from Democrat of Arizona to independent. We could do three hours of parlor games on that alone, but I think she probably understood that she had no constituency with the Democratic base in Arizona anymore, doesn't clearly have one with the Republicans, didn't have any place to go. I also believe for some reason that she will take the opportunity to run for president as an independent 2024, but we can get to that. But Trigley noted, I'm not sure if there's a Republican other than the likes of us, other than like a Justin Amash who went from being a Republican to an independent, he was always really a libertarian, who's left the Republican Party. There have been a few Democrats here and there, but you haven't seen anybody flee the Republican Party yet. The people that you want to see leave it haven't. But I think it also shows that the GOP is really, really sticky that, you know, look, when we say we need to get nine or 10 percent of Republican voters, you know, that means we're going to lose 90 percent of Republican voters. Okay, right. But if we get 10 percent of them, plus the other pieces, the coalition will win. But Rick, what is it about this stickiness that Republicans have even now as they've moved so far into zombie land? I'm going to say this and you're going to laugh or cry or laugh and cry or both. It's communism. It's communism. And it's the rest of the catalog of imaginary demons that live in the heads of seemingly every Republican voter because they look at the moral outrage of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They look at the moral outrage of a Steve Bannon or a Roger Stone or a Donald Trump, and they say, well, I don't know. I don't like him. But the alternative is that Joe Biden is going to seize the means of production and establish a communist dictatorship in America. And you and I and everybody else rational who hears those words says, get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? And laughs. But they truly now in their heads believe, and because they've been told for a generation or more, that they are in an apocalyptic battle between good and evil, that it is a choice between the darkest possible imagined forces and a flawed and compromised and perhaps imperfect man like Donald Trump. But the only other alternative is to sink into a sea of Marxism. And they don't understand history. They don't understand what communism really is. They don't understand what America's political system is wired to do over time. 
but my God, are they afraid of communism. And it blows my fucking mind that we have failed as a country to educate people. I mean, the idea that the Democratic Party in the U.S., which is as corporatist as can possibly be imagined, <laughs> right. is somehow the vanguard of the proletariat. And they always have this like word salad combo pack of things. It's like, this is cultural Marxism and Leninist Maoism. Well, which they don't understand any more than anybody else does. And it's not just Fox that's to blame for this. It's a generation of people who heard Rush fucking Limbaugh and Glenn Beck over and over and over again have these crackpot, nutcase, wackadoodled, fake historians on their shows, and they would scratch their chins and opine like, why, yes, obviously, teaching children to read is part of the Frankfurt School's plan to indoctrinate them with Marxist-Leninism. The fuck? <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's interesting, Rick, something you said. Well, first of all, I think we shouldn't underestimate for mostly white Americans, mostly white upper middle class Americans, that when you talk about Rush, I was thinking about Rush the other day, which shows you everything you need to know about what's wrong with my brain, is how many kids were listening to Rush when they were in the car with their parents. We didn't because... My dad worked on Capitol Hill. The last thing he was going to do was probably listen to Rush Limbaugh. But I remember that's like taking your work home with you. Right. Who needs it? But I remember, you know, visiting a friend of mine in North Carolina and his mom had, you know, this is the probably 89, 90. Right. So I'm 13, 14 years old, had Rush on in the car every afternoon. Right. But also to your point, you know, I have I've, I've mentioned this before. I have a very conservative family member I'm close to. And he is a fundamentally decent person, very philanthropic, very uh, spiritual, goes to church every Sunday very attuned to family. And he has been done with Trump. Didn't like Trump in 16, but of course, didn't like Hillary, not surprising. Didn't like Trump in 20. But as soon as it became a fight, Rick, as soon as it became a binary choice, to your point about Trump versus Biden, then he was all in. Because then to your point, Trump gets 61 million votes in 2016, gets 75 million 14 million more in 2020 right now. Thank God Biden got significantly more in the popular vote, but enough in the places where he needed to win the Electoral College. And I think that that's something that people don't, I think, always understand, which is in a lot of these races that we saw in 2022. Yes, the Republican nominee, largely Trump back, but also, let's be clear, endorsed by and campaigned with by the likes of the Glenn Youngkins and the Lindsey Grahams and the Ron DeSantis is they were all out there with these people, right? They all had a foot in Magaland. But when it becomes a national choice at a binary level, is it going to be this direction for America or that direction for America? To your point, the 40, 50, 60 years, if you want to go back to it, Rick, 90 years that Republicans have been working on this since the New Deal, it has had an effect. I think it has accelerated. It is an intensified over the last few years based on any number of economic, social, political factors, everything else. But this is not a new fight. The difference was is that the fight was always like with the John Birch Society way over there, right? Like they knew what they wanted, but everybody thought they were nuts. But there's always been this vein there. Look, the paranoid strain of American politics has always been with us. The insane people have always been out there. But two things that really fundamentally changed us were the homogeneous conservative media across the country 
because there used to be a very different Republican Party in New England versus the West, versus the South, versus the Midwest. And they were ironically much more American then. But once you had the rise of talk radio, which really started in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to impose a sort of homogeneous conservative baseline across everyone in the party. And then when you had Fox explode in 1997 into the Republican political culture, that then also led to a certain sort of sameness of belief. And so once the party had a candidate, it required ideological conformity and indoctrination. And no matter how bad the candidate was, everyone had to play the ball game. Everyone had to play the whole kabuki dance of, no, he's absolutely perfect. He's never done anything wrong. And the irony of all these people who are afraid of communism and and Marxism and ideological conformity are the greatest proponents when it comes to the Republican Party of conformity and ideological. Well, and and let me say that even if there is a slice of that on the left, it is a much narrower slice. Now, it can be just as sort of, you know, nose in the air, finger wagging, but it is I would say that it is a plurality, if not a majority of everyday Republicans who are at least willing to go along with this stuff, Rick. That's exactly right, Reed. It's a majority and then some. And the other factor I, I sort of left out of that was the greatest example of projection in the world of our time is that Republicans always describe the Democrats as having this gigantic, nefarious bureaucracy with a giant plan behind it. And you and I both know from our recent exposure to the Democratic operations, it is the worst projection in the world. The Republicans actually do have a 50-year plan. They actually do have this cohesive top-to-bottom indoctrination process beginning in fucking grade school for their kids that runs all the way up. They do have plans that are based on a generational turnover of things like the Supreme Court. I mean, for our Democratic friends who were shocked by the Dobbs decision, why? They told you a hundred times, we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going to do this by filling the courts up with our people and suing strategically across these different domains. There's nothing you can do to stop us. Fuck you. Try. I try and tell that to my Democratic friends and independent friends and, and potential voters who are worried about the Marxism, Leninism of the Democrats. And I said, let me be clear, like, they couldn't organize a two-car motorcade most days, right, on the far left. So stop worrying about it. I mean, there's a reason why it's now history, but you used to think, Rick, about those gigantic rallies they'd have on the ellipse south of the White House when you could still do stuff on the ellipse. And it would be every interest group aligned with the left would get up and have their five to seven minutes. But there was no coherent theme. It was just like, we're all pissed off about our own thing. And no one was ever able to bring it together. It was only when you had the likes of a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama, and frankly now, for the most part, a Joe Biden, where they had the one, the hero, that they were willing to get in line. And even then, not for long, right? Because getting in line meant you had to be okay with everything they did, unlike Republicans who have said before, right, when a Republican president, whoever it is, basically from Nixon to Trump, whatever words a Republican president said were as if handed down by God directly. When I make a call, we move as a team. (laughs) Right. And every Republican organ and front group and everything else, you know, says this is the great thing. As I told the dinner I was at in Washington, D.C. last week. But think about y'all. Joe Biden gives the State of the Union address and not one, but two Democrats give a response to it. And 
Last year, when every single professional campaign advisor was telling Democrats, hey, our votes rise or fall with the president's approval rating, let's not fuck it up. What were Democrats doing? I mean, every fucking backbencher was like, well, I think I need to run for president. And it's just mind boggling the degree to which they're willing to emulate themselves in quixotic and frankly, astoundingly poorly timed political gestures that don't make sense. Yeah, we've seen this before, right? Democrats want to win, I think most of the time, but they also want to win in the way that they feel like is morally superior, that they can feel good about. And I think that in the very baseline way, Rick, maybe that makes them better people. But this is a binary game. You win or you lose, right? There are no moral victories in campaigns. Second prize, set of steak knives. Oh, I just watched that scene. <laughs> if you have not watched. All right. So there's many of you who remember this, but Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross was a play on Broadway, but it then became a movie with Kevin Spacey, Adam Arkin, Alec Baldwin, who comes in just briefly for seven minutes. That's all he's in the movie. ABC, always be closing. First prize, Cadillac. Second prize, set of steak knives. Third prize, you're fired. And if you want to see a great sales pitch and feel bad about humanity, watch those seven minutes. It's probably the best seven minutes of Alec Baldwin's career. But I want to say this. So, Rick, John Della Volpe, friend of ours who was just on the show from Harvard, does a ton of research, posted this. He said, Gen Z and millennials, 18 to 34, equal the only age group where Democratic Party has a net favorable rating. GOP is net negative 24 with the same group. But just quickly, Democratic Party fave on fave, minus three overall, plus seven, 18 to 34, minus three, 35 to 49, minus 12, 50 to 64, and minus five, 65 plus. Go over to the Republican Party, minus seven overall, minus 24, 18 to 34, minus six, 35 to 49, plus five, 50 to 64, which is Gen Xers and late boomers, and minus one, 65 plus. The issue here, and this is one thing I want everybody listening to understand, is that Gen Z saved our bacon in 2022, but nobody else did. There's nobody else out there with the cavalry that's coming in a general election until and unless we go find those people, recruit them, and make sure they stay on side two years from now. But let me ask you this, because I think you're either a late boomer or the earliest of Gen Xers. I'm sort of mid-late Gen Xer. What the fuck is going on with Generation X? Yeah, and I always make this joke because there's a joke that Gen X started the day Kennedy died, and I was born the day before Kennedy died. So I'm the last-ass boomer or early Xer, whatever the cusp of that whole thing is. So I get both cultural references to some degree. Let me tell you what's wrong. The Democrats are selling an elite party. They are selling a party that has a lot of posturing and hyper-educated people who come across as luxury and hectoring, telling people who may be doing stupid things to stop being stupid, and they don't like it. They out there in the world being the great unwashed masses. They out there in the world being the people who don't feel like they deserve to be smeared with the tarred brush of racism or homophobia or anti-Semitism but who also are not fluent in the language of today's academic left. And I tell a story in my first book, uh, my second book, excuse me, about a guy who was a recent transplant to Florida. This is in 2015. Lifetime Democrat, came down here from Michigan, 
He had lost his union job just before retirement, managed to get, you know, going to retire, but still was going to have to work for another year and a half or so because his job had been offshore. Classic case, right? And he came down and he said, I like to think of myself as a liberal. I voted for Barack Obama. I voted for Bill Clinton. But I come down, you know, on the side where I'm worried that if I go into a workplace now and I don't say the right thing, they'll fire me and I'll lose everything. And was that real? It was real enough in that guy's head to where he was going to vote for Donald fucking Trump in 2016. I promise you that guy stayed because they feel like there is a terrible judgment waiting for them if they make a social faux pas. They feel like if they're people of faith, that they are completely excluded from the Democratic Party. And I I got some news from my Democratic friends. America is not chock full of atheists. It's just not. They feel like if they're black or Hispanic, they've been taken for granted. They feel like if they're a black or Hispanic male, that they have much more in common, especially a working class black or Hispanic male, that they have much more in common with the Republicans than they do with the Democrats. They feel like if they're a male in general, that they live in a complete trap all the time of behavioral norms they don't understand and can't meet. And a lot of parents feel like the Democratic Party is beholden to the teachers unions. And I got some news from my friends in the Democratic Party. The teachers union, whether they do good work or not, their brand image with parents in the country is not so great. And all that's tough love. And I'm sure some of our Democratic friends are listening and saying, oh, well, you're just Republicans. I'm like, I want to be really clear. We're just here to try to save this place. And I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that your shit smells like peanut butter. It doesn't. There are some things the Democratic Party must work on inside internally. And the reason that Donald Trump isn't president is that Joe Biden was not the progressive dream date. There were a lot of Republicans who said, okay, I get him. He's Uncle Joe. He says some weird shit. He's kind of old, but that's okay. He's a working class guy. I get him. He gets me. Well, and compared to what Trump says, even to this day on a moment-by-moment basis, right? Again, the biggest challenge of the Democrats is not what they really are. It's what they are perceived to be. And for Republicans, the biggest challenge is what they really are, which is an authoritarian movement now driven by madmen and conspiracists. Let's talk about a little bit about 23 and 24. You know, we were talking to a group of people last week in New York. You know, we had an hour. They want to spend 15 or 20 minutes talking about Ron DeSantis. I think you mentioned this morning that, you know, Tim Scott's getting the boomlet. You know, at the thing I was at last week, you know, these folks will all get in against Trump because, you know, this is their time. It all feels like you like to say 2015 thinking. Sometimes it feels like 2008 thinking or maybe even 1992 thinking that, you know, some of these people, you know, they have to have campaigns in waiting if Trump decides not to run. And I'm like, all right, um, well, you know, one of them will pick them off or, you know, maybe they'll all get behind one guy like the Democrats did. And I'm like, they won't because, see, the Democrats did it because they realized Joe Biden can win. Bernie Sanders can't. And they did it for the good of the country. They put their own ambition aside. I said, you have to understand the people that might run against Trump and Trump himself, they're part of the same prism, which is they're all only self-interested. Right. The greatest conceit of 2016 was on the part of the Democrats that Trump would be the easy one to beat. And the greatest conceit on the part of the Republicans in 2016 was that 
the Republican Party was desperate for a true conservative leader who would be the Federalist Society dream date, who would give them the Tea Party dream would finally blossom into full fruition. And that was always all bullshit. You know, Jeb thought, well, if I hammer away at Marco while Marco's hammering Trump, then I'll slide into that position. And Cruz was thinking, well, Marco and Jeb are beating up Trump and they're beating up each other. They played this game in their heads of three-dimensional chess, where, as you like to say, Trump was eating the pieces. And this idea that anybody's going to save this country but us, and I don't mean us, the Lincoln Project, I mean us, the voters, I mean us people who believe in American, in the American Republic, who believe in democracy and individual liberty and freedom, is wrong. There's not going to be some miracle from heaven that you can count on electorally to save you. The thing that made me the most angry in the spring of 21 was that these people were like, oh, Donald Trump is the former guy. He's gone now. We don't have to think about him anymore. Um, really? You think so? Because he was never former. He's the forever guy in their heads. I don't want people to over-rotate on thinking, A, there's going to be a miracle legally. Unless Donald Trump is actually convicted and put in prison, he will be the Republican nominee right now. Everybody's got this, like, oh, Ron DeSantis will absolutely be president. I'm picking out curtains. And, you know, the bloom was briefly off the rose when Carrie Lake looked like she would win. And then now Tim Scott's going to come along. And they're all thinking, well, I'm the one. And there are so many people thinking that they're the one that the tyranny of mathematics is about to exert itself upon all of them. That tyranny is this. Donald Trump has 15% of the vote at the minimum. He could eat a live baby on TV and 15% of people go, well, yeah, that, that weakling DeSantis would never eat a live baby. And because of that, we're going to end up with a field with five, six, 10 other people in it. Okay, so you go to Iowa and Trump takes his 15% and Ron DeSantis gets nine and Josh Hawley gets two and Nikki Haley gets one and Tim Scott gets four. Okay, who won that race? Donald Trump did. Then they go to South Carolina and New Hampshire and on and on and on and on and on. And maybe you get to Florida and DeSantis wins. But the strategy in 2016 was with Jeb and Marco. They're like, well, I'll definitely win Florida. Well, remember, that was also the infamous strategy of Rudy Giuliani. <sighs> I, was in the, I was in the room when they came up with that idea. And I literally looked across the table at my friend Bill McCullum, who was the Attorney General of Florida. We were the only two like significant Florida guys in the room. We looked at each other like, this is the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard. That was the first op-ed I ever had published, Rick, in Politico, 2007, said, can Rudy really go 0 for 6 and still win? The answer was no, but it's sort of, sometimes it's easy pushing open a door. But think about that was Rudy Giuliani, 2007. Yeah, he was magic then. And folks, I want to say this. This is being the third anniversary show. What you're getting from us is what you always get. We don't bullshit you. We don't give you sunshine and roses. We tell you where the challenges are and how we should face them and how we go at them and how we can conquer in a space where a lot of people would give up. And I will tell you this, there's going to be a great temptation to sigh and say, oh God, Trump's back. Fox is going to get behind him again. And they will, by the way. And Biden's old and the, nobody likes us. And you know, Every one of those things can be true, but it also doesn't excuse you from being in the fight. 
Because if you're not in the fight, they will win. If we're not in the fight, 2024 becomes the last election. Well, and, you know, they're counting on that, right? That's why you see so much of the wearing down, right? Because it's just, you know, whether or not it's the insanity of the House GOP, you know, willing to die on the hill of Hunter Biden or Elon Musk doing his daily insanity, which let's be clear too, most of the world has no idea about, nor do they care about what baby Emerald Pockets thinks about anything. He's kooky. He's another non-self-made gajillionaire who bought himself a platform and it gets to use it to make everybody crazy. And that's what he is. He's just an uber troll. But this stuff wears down a certain part of the population, Rick, which I think also happens to be the population most willing and able to push back. But I think, you know, as we look forward into 2024, it's going to be a long road ahead. These things are a marathon, not a sprint. You know, if you and I said three years ago this week that we'd be here three years from now, staring down the barrel of another two years, I don't think either one of us would have either A, imagined that or certainly be hoped for it. But here we are. And so now I think let's talk a little bit about what we have to do. I mean, I think that from my perspective, there's a few things that we all have to do. One, democracy is still in peril. The second Tuesday in November was a great day for democracy. It bought democracy time and space, but it did not save it. It was a great battle in the overall war. And it is a war. Second is these are all bad people. They're all Trump adjacent. They're all MAGA adjacent. They all know that they can't win without some of the evil that's been released into the bloodstream. They need some of it. Some of them need more of it. Some of them are naturals to it. Most of them are incredibly cynical, right? None of them are naturals like Trump is, right? They're all like doing it through Google Translate, so it sounds weird. And most of them have yet to be tested on a real stage. You know, look, being governor of Florida, being governor of Virginia, being a senator from South Carolina, being secretary of state, like these things are all important, right? They're all big jobs in their own way, but it's nothing like the colonoscopy of running for president of the United States. It's nothing like the, I even used to call it the American singularity, right? It, a presidential campaign creates its own gravity where everything that could be sucked into it will be sucked into it. And it will start whenever Trump determines it's going to start, I think, for Republicans. Somebody said the other day, like, why isn't he doing more? Because he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need to go out. He doesn't need to spend money. He can send out his 19 emails a day for, you know, a 10,000 percent match and, you know, raise. Look, Rick, if he raises 15 million bucks a month, that's 14 million more than somebody's going to raise in their best month in the next calendar year, probably. And so the scales are so crazy different. What we saw you mentioned briefly earlier, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her Geppetto, Kevin McCarthy, if he is indeed speaker, if he is indeed elected speaker. Right. We'll do all sorts of craziness. They will push the boundaries of decency, legality, probably, which they already have. They will get little to nothing done by design as the leaders of the United States House of Representatives. It will be all investigations all the time. And I think, frankly, that is a bad political strategy. It's clearly a bad policy strategy because, you know, this is the one thing, Rick, that we've seen about Republicans nowadays is they don't actually like being in charge of anything because then they, they're responsible. Reed, that's a huge element here, is that they thrive on this sense of, oh, we're being oppressed, we're being humiliated, we're being insulted. And that idea that they're some sort of protected class that deserves a, you know, a soft pillow to cry into all the time is not where a governing party operates. 
because a governing party has to do actual things. They actually have to get out and pass legislation and do things for people. They're much better off from their political perspective that they're not in charge of anything, that they don't do anything. And they will say next year, well, we couldn't do anything about inflation because we had to do the vital Hunter Biden investigation. And their people will go, yeah, okay. But this is also, you know, Rick, what the Republican donor class, the Republican operative class, the sort of people who are waiting for the GOP of old to be, you know, resurrected like Lazarus, the trade association Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce Republicans, they hate all this because they just want to get back to the business of good old fashioned passing tax cuts, you know, honest graft, you know, corporatization of government, everything else. Right. Just they just want it all back. The difference is, Rick, is that there's no belief there. Right. They just want to be None. in charge again. And this has always been the secret sauce, the Franz von Papen demo of the GOP, where they're like, well, we can control and we'll be OK. We'll make it work. It's fine. The tweeting is fine. We can just, you know. We'll put our people in the White House. They'll be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I mean, this is fine while the room is on fire is sort of the perfect image of the GOP for the next two years, not to mention as long as he still breathes air. Right. Because ultimately, and this is how this stuff works, is that ultimately what it comes down to is that they don't want to govern. They want to rule. They don't want to be representative of the people. They want to be representative of only themselves and the people they feel like they need to stay in power. And I think that's one thing that, you know, we need to bang into the head of our friends in the Acela Corridor is like the world you knew is gone. You have not seen anything yet. It will be crazier than you can possibly imagine. Look, Rick, I spent five weeks in Florida during the 2000 recount, and I told myself now 22 years ago, which is hard to believe that nothing would ever be crazier than those five weeks. And you know what? <laughs> Every year since then has been more crazy. But not like crazy like additive, but like an earthquake, right? When it's like, you're the math guy. Like when it goes from 7.1 to 7.2, it's not like one-tenth worse. It's like an order of magnitude worse, right? It's geometric. Right. The amplitude and the frequency of the crazy is getting more intense. So it's getting worse and it's getting worse faster. But, you know, as we start to wrap up, Reed, I mean, I do want to give people some optimism here. Yes, I need some now, Rick. This fight in 2022 did show us a couple things. The first thing is the old model of politics is completely broken. The idea that you're going to go in and just spend X million dollars on 3,000 gross rating points of TV and change everybody's mind doesn't work anymore. In Georgia, they spent $400 million to have three tied elections in a row. It's insane. And over two years, $1.4 billion. And so in all that, there's a sense that increasingly the battles that matter are battles of narrative and message and organization, not just of pound away on TV and digital. You know, and we've adjusted to be much better warfighters by instead of trying to take on 100,000 enemy troops, we blow up the bridge and leave them trapped in their isolation. And so that is proving, I think, something that people should take some hope from because it does matter how you organize people and motivate them as much as it does how much you try to persuade them on broadcast TV. The second thing is that even in the face of Republican voter laws that are meant to dissuade people from turning out, they still turned out. I interviewed our friend Tia Mitchell about the Georgia race, and she said, 
they said you can't be within 150 feet of a polling place. So they got a tape measure out and they put their water stand 160 feet away. And they said, come at us. And we're going to keep going at this in, I think, some very fundamental ways of working to work around and not just becoming disheartened. And I think that's the biggest thing is people are starting to realize that the MAGA media complex and Elon Musk's version of Twitter and all these things, they're meant to basically shut you down. They're meant to make you go, oh, fuck it, I'm done. And you don't have to. You just don't have to be that person. You can fight on and fight harder. And it really is something that people, I think, are starting to take some hope from. And look, folks, we beat Trump before. This country can beat him again. And this time, we can do it better. We can do it to a degree and a scope and an outcome that also starts to deter people from wanting to be like that. Pain in politics is the only real teacher. And I think it's time that people come together again and recognize we have to inflict that political pain on them one more time. We have to hit them hard. We have to hit them so hard that they begin to reconsider this and we break the back of what was the Republican Party. People always criticize. They're like, you said you don't want the Republican Party around anymore. No, I don't want Donald Trump's version of the Republican Party. And I don't want people like Steve Bannon running the Republican Party. And I don't want to run the Republican Party, but I don't want people who are evil running it. And right now, the people that run it, a lot of evil there. And I would say, Rick, just as you said, just to close that, you know, guys, it's been an incredible three years. We would not be here without you. And there are millions of you out there and we thank you for all We're of your deeply grateful. kind words and your contributions both financial and sweat wise you know special shout out to the entire team at the lincoln project who day in and day out make that pirate ship sail sail it into harm's way on an almost daily basis make everything happen also the folks at the union and sixty-two thousand plus volunteers in the 72 organizations with whom we partnered that is the way as rick said that we're going to win this and that work starts taking place now gang right there's that old adage when you're exhausted you don't quit you rest if you need to take some rest if you need to take a break i get it everyone will need to it's going to be a long 23 months now rick but guys this is the fight of our time and we are lucky enough to be part of it and rick i think of all the good days all the bad days all the highs all the lows and somebody once asked me, if you knew everything that was going to happen in these three years, would you do it again? And I say, without a second thought. I would categorically, unequivocally do it again. I would do some things differently, but I would do it again because this fight has mattered. It has mattered to America. It has mattered to our families. It is not always easy. And as Reed pointed out, and I want to say this as well, the people at the Lincoln Project today are the best of the best. They are tougher and smarter and they fight harder and they work creatively and collaboratively every day. And this is a political rarity. Most campaigns are a bucket of snakes biting each other. And this is a team that has been through hell together, fought battles they know mean, you know, whether or not their kids live in freedom in the future. And I'm so proud of every single one of them. And I'm so proud of the work they do. And Reed, I treasure our friendship and our Amen, work that brother. we've done together. And, you know, folks, we always joke about this. We would love to go out and just retire. And I'll just restore old airplanes and Reed will raise goats. And that would be great. But until that day comes, we're going to get up every morning and we're going to take the stick to the bad guys. 
as long as you guys want us to keep up the fight, we're going to keep up the fight. We appreciate every single one of you. And I want to wish everyone a glorious Christmas and a very happy new year and the best to everyone. Well, amen to that, Rick. And thank you as well for everything. Guys, it is a rare thing in life, but certainly in politics to get up every morning to know that your partner is your brother and that, um, you know, there are some people who work on campaigns all their lives and they say, okay, we have an idea for an ad and you get it back. And you're like, this is not at all what we asked for. (laughs) And, you know, with Rick and his team, they bring it every single time. They drive the narrative every single time. And I couldn't imagine somebody who I'd rather be in the trench with every day. So, Rick, I want to thank you. And I want to say thank you to the millions. As I mentioned earlier, there are millions, maybe tens of millions of you out there. And we will rely on every single one of you. Just to think about, Rick, as we close here, uh, George C. Scott and his famous portrayal of Patton, you get to ask yourself, gang, at the end of this, what did you do? Did you fight in the Great War for democracy or did you shovel shit in Louisiana? And I think I know where I'm going to be. Absolutely. All right, Rick, where can our folks find you online and where can they find the Enemies List podcast? The Enemies List podcast is available wherever fine podcasts are found, Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere else. The other places online you can find me, I'm on Twitter at the Rick Wilson for as long as that particular hellscape continues to function. I am on Post News as the Rick Wilson. I am on Instagram as well, also as the Rick Wilson. I have let Reed take the TikTok thing. I am not on the TikTok at this point. I am 59 years old as of a few weeks ago, and I don't think I can do TikTok. I don't think I can do the dances. Well, I found that if you limber up, it's easier. Um, <laughs> all right, gang, as always, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, as Rick mentioned, at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. To everybody on the Lincoln Project team, to everybody on the union team, to everybody out there who has given their blood, sweat, and tears, and so much more to these efforts. We start year four, Rick. We start year four today. Gang, as Rick said, Have a very Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy New Year, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.